Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Hello everyone, welcome to the Rough Trade Books Club. It's January already, it's January 2023. We've got a bumper show lined up for you. We have two fantastic guests. We've got the poet Don Patterson. Um, hi Don, how are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm good man, thank you. Yeah, not too bad. I'm just crawling from the wreckage of Christmas. Yeah, so was, was Christmas a wreckage? Have you got, uh, did you have family? Did you visit family? What did you do? Yeah, the, the the entire clan were up in Boxing Day, which was uh, which was lovely, I have to say. Uh, yeah, I don't know, I always struggle at Christmas a bit, and I'm, I always sort of um, take down the tree with tears of joy, um, which I did this morning, and uh, and, and threw it out into the garden. So um, I'm quite chipper, really, now all that's over. I don't know, yeah, I don't know if anyone else has that, but I find it a blues yeah, no, idea. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm not a massive Christmas fan. Um, our second guest is Martin Corner. Martin, are you, uh, who is the general manager of Foils, the world's Hello. greatest bookshop? Martin, are you, are you a Christmas fan? I'm, I'm probably ambivalent, actually, in the, in the general scheme of things. I, I, I like, like I say, my parents live down on the Isle of Wight, so I visit them basically twice a year because it's a pain in the ass to get to. So it's, the, it's one of only two occasions that I have to see them. So it's nice to see them. And then, uh, and, and it's, you know, just nice to touch base with them and my sister. So, yeah, I, I like it for that reason quite a lot. It's good fun. Did you, um, were you back home for New Year? No, I was home for, for the, the way the bookselling world works uh, is that you get almost no time off at all. Although I had oh, yeah. slightly more time than usual this year, luckily. Um, so I was down on the Isle of Wight for kind of three days, which is um, good for bookselling, I assure you. Um, and then, um, and then um, had a couple of days off at New Year, which I spent with my partner um, in London. So any particular reason for that track? I think three or four three or four reasons. I changed it at the last minute. I was desperately trying to think of something which I was listening to in 1998 uh, as a, okay. for, for the Boyle's job. But also uh, it's a song about moving to London. And he says, I'm bought at flat in Archway in 19, um, age 23. And I lived in a flat in Archway age, age 19, so age, age 23. <laughs> Um, so it was kind of there's a lot of parallels there as well. So it's just a, um, I, I think he's a tremendous songwriter, um, hugely underrated, uh, and so that was a good reason as well. But something just I, I was trying to find something that I listened to in 1998, and actually music was not great in 1998. 
Uh, and this was something that jumped out at me. So, yeah, that was the main reason. And did you, what were you doing in London then? How did you move to London? You moved from the Isle of Wight, I'm presuming. No, I, I went to university in Glamorgan and right. uh, studied philosophy, journalism, creative writing, various things, and then wanted to move to London because, um, sadly, on reflection, but I mean, hugely enjoyably at the time, Britpop was happening and I was, um, and I was exactly the right age. So I was coming down to London every six months to rejoice and to drink in the bar with various members of Blur and menswear and living the high life. And so wanted to um, wanted to move to London where it was all happening. Um, and so and did the minute I finished university. So crashed on people's sofas until various of my friends who were doing four-year courses finished theirs and then lived in North London and moved around North London for a while and that's where I that's where I still reside but yeah London was where it was at and I just wanted to be wanted to be present. So what was the move to Gower Street like? So Gower Street Waterstones is I don't know it's 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 a sort of top five best known bookshops in the country probably. Yeah. Um, Has its own kind of personality um, right next to the University of London um, not uh, slightly, uh, always under the shadow of Waterson's Piccadilly. But yeah. uh, <laughs> it wasn't at the time. So when I moved there, Piccadilly right. opened. I think Piccadilly opened right. a year later. But yeah, when I moved there, I think one of the reasons they had vacancies was because they had just been taken over by Waterstones, having been Dylan's. So they were just going right. through a big redundancy. So when I got there, it was one of those places where they were going through a little bit of shell shock of having. My God, I seem to do this a lot. I went to when I went to Foils, they were going through a bit of shell shock as well. Uh, going through the shell shock of having been taken over by a company um, who had the best intentions, but were learning how to, uh, you know, bring a, a group of booksellers who had been with the, comp- the, the Dylans for a few years. So it was a strange place to be working for a while, but it was yeah, it was lovely. It was really good fun. Now, bear in mind, it was kind of coming out of Foils, so it was probably more of a community um, and much more of a. a it was a friendlier environment, I think, overall. Or rather, I was there long enough that I probably became friends with them quicker. Right. So where I was with and how many, how many members of staff were there in Gower Street? A good question. I would, I, I couldn't begin to tell you because I was, I was young, and I, I, I was probably like thought there were hundreds and hundreds, but certainly more than there are now. Many. So the the thing, the comparison that goes through my head now is that the medical department. I know this is not a medical department specialist um, radio show, but the medical department back then was the entirety of the basement of the Gower Street branch, which now takes, and it now takes up about five or six bays in that very same uh, floor. Uh, And there were about 10 members of staff working in the medical department alone. Um, And the year before, there were 14. So to think think about it in those terms, because the internet didn't exist and because um, Gower Street, as you said, it was next to UCL and next to ULU and all those places. So it was the premier academic place. And so if the internet doesn't exist, how do you get your academic books across the world? I once had a a Saudi Arabian prince and his envoy come into the shop and spent like £8,000 and just kind of, and I, I was like, I'd been with the company for like a year and a half, didn't really know how to deal with it. The manager had gone off to get their hair cut. So I had to make all the decisions. Um, and it was just the scariest thing dealing with the prince and his envoy. Um, and But that would happen all the time because there was no internet. So people used to come from all over the world to buy the only the text in English because surgical texts didn't exist in, you know, in any other language or not so much. So 
the money would be made would, that would be made there would be tremendous. So the academic sections would be huge, which is just completely gone now because because of the internet. There's Don. There's a great uh, section in your book where you become obsessed with origami, hmm. and um, you go on a kind of origami book hunt. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, there was one particular title that you know sort of was the holy grail, and there was only one bookshop in uh, uh, in Scotland that uh, stocked it, whose name has suddenly flown out of my head, but starts with an F. What the hell would it have been called? Um, it was a kind of you know kind of Edinburgh monolith. You know, so, um, you know, so I was sleepless in anticipation for weeks before this purchase, you know, um, but you have to say I went very smoothly. Unlike any time I was in foils in the 90s, it was so funny <laughs> listening to Martin talk about that. And you're thinking about who would have been on the take then? I'm thinking, well, me. I mean, it was it was the least <laughs> most stupid system, you know, and it, was, it seemed to be predicated in the idea that um, they didn't want any stock to leave the shop. You know, but and the number of times I bailed out halfway through a purchase because I just didn't understand what was going on, <laughs> or I was standing in the wrong queue for half an hour. It was just bonkers. So God, I'm, glad, I'm glad everybody was on the take. I'm sorry, man. Um, no, no, I was just saying it was because it was for commission. It was like there was there was when I was there, it was so ah. dog eat dog that everyone would basically like you know you work in the medical department. Sorry, I'm interrupting, but um, in the medical department there were books that went up about up to eight hundred pounds, and if you were the person who made that sale you'd want to get that 80 pounds or the 10 percent commission right. through yourself so that's why there was this kind of this this, this multi this multi-stage selling process and everyone being really weird about the hanging on to their customer commission is a terrible way of of, of um, kind of trying to inspire community service and trying to inspire good service but anyway, oh, was so- it was it was the actual sort of long uh, sort of purchase protocol some kind of uh was it some kind of oversight was it like stasi like oversight of that with it was it an opportunity to su- surveil the the operation or something what was the logic behind the, the three q system and the four I've receipts i've never really understood the why the three q system existed but as I understand it, it was because the the main. I think the, it was based on the idea that the expert would be out in the field talking to customers about the books, mm. and they but they wouldn't be the person to make the sale, and the lowly till person would be the person to make the sale. As I understand it, it would be about that. It was sort of separating out the person who had the knowledge and the person who just went, "That's five pounds ninety nine, please," which is obviously insane. But I think that was the idea of it. Right. Terrible idea. I know, absolutely <laughs> insane, right? <laughs> the, the only thing I would say is that there's a place in my heart for eccentric bookshops and eccentric yeah. booksellers. That um, there was in Brighton, there was a bookshop called uh, was a guy called N. F. Brooks, an old Brooks. Who had a oh, I love Brooks. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. I'm sorry, to, sorry, we've yeah, been yeah. there, but it's just yeah, I know Brooks. Yeah, I used to, and you had another shop over the road that was even worse. And it was yeah, Queen Street. <laughs> Oh, yeah, God, it's in Queen thing. Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, and they were the books. Were, the shops were just full of books, and there were very, very tall piles of books that all looked like they were about to collapse in on you. And he had this mm-hmm. one shop, and he got the shop over the road, as Don said, and that was just. It had a completely glass front, so you could mm-hmm. see the whole shop, and it was just like one gigantic pile of books. Um, uh, <laughs> there were many, many. And if you looked out the back of Brooks, you know, sort of the back of the sort of you know one of the uh, Queen Street shops, and you looked into the back garden, he had like a two-story outhouse with the windows, yeah, you know, were just cluttered with more books. I mean, it seemed to go on yeah. forever. And you know, and he that, was really that, a pleasant guy as well, you know. 
yeah. <laughs> and that um, that two story outhouse <coughs> became more and more derelict until it was this sort of derelict. It was just a derelict building full of old books. Um, and yeah, he was he, he wasn't unpleasant to everyone, but he was. No, um, he, he liked to drink, uh, and he always <laughs> had a cigarette in his mouth. And um, yeah, there were various stories involving either a Egyptian football team or an Egyptian rugby team. Uh, we cannot repeat on the radio, but are sort of part of the urban uh, myths of Brighton um, and not Brooks. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, do, I so I understand that it might be a nightmare to work in Falls, but I do slightly miss that the eccentricity of of bookshops a bit. Oh, you can you can tell um, there's so much love for it. You look on again every kind of once a year at least uh, a, a thread will erupt on the the quirkiness of foils uh, and. It, you know, you can tell it's all said with love, the frustrations, the everything that goes along with it. But everyone just loved it because it was because it was eccentric and it played by its own rules. So, yeah, I completely get that um, from a shopping perspective, there's 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 a good amount of uh, of love for it. And what um, so you, when you got <coughs> to Gower Street, then when did you first get put in charge of a kind of section that you actually were interested in, loved? Mm. Well, oh God, um, that's a, a good question. I don't. I think it took a long while. I was typecast, you know, like someone who was stuck in a role for many years. I was suddenly the medical bookseller, so I was in the medical department for right. about three years, and I did oh not love. God. I mean, I, 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 I could tell you things about dentistry books that you wouldn't believe, <laughs> but I did not love those books, and I, I cared about them because I wanted to sell them. But I, but I, I suppose I learned then that you don't have to love a book to want to sell it, and that's really important because you're selling books to customers and you're trying to work out what the customers want. And so I think I, I had that kind of that lucky upbringing in work quite early on. So when I got to work in sections that I like, when I, when I, because I, I. I went from there, strangely. So I won one bookseller of the year, and then I got drunk at the um, awards ceremony, which was in Capri, uh, and and said yes to managing or assistant managing um, the Ilford branch of Waterstones, which is insane. Um, so I was there, and I was, then I was in Ilford for a few years, and then I finally got out to Ludgate Circus in central London, which was right. great. So that that was really when I first started managing a bookshop that I loved, right. and then then I managed Piccadilly, which was oh well, the ground floor at Piccadilly, which is like right. you know, God, so much fun! What a building! So, so what was Ludgate Circus like then? Uh, it was it was great fun because I was left completely alone. Uh, it was uh, it was off the radar, so we could do what we wanted. I, I, when I say we could do what we wanted, we didn't go too far. But I create I we did what we wanted in terms of recommending books and sort of shouting about books that we loved. And we didn't have to go too heavy on the Jamie Oliver's of this world, even though you know every branch has to sell its Jamie Oliver's. We didn't like give over too many bays to it we would we would it was really good fun um there was this period when um the company was not in great shape um shortly before uh, uh alexander Mamut took over and james dawn took over as managing director um when we went through a thing called hot pink which is everywhere anyone who's worked in the company for more than 15 years will tell you that hot pink in inverted commas was the nightmare period for working for waterstones because they they panicked because because of, of amazon and they had all their books like not all their books but a great deal of their books at half price all front of store lots of lots of books at less than half price or sorry more than half price and it was just an unbearable kind of you know 
tacky bookshop at the front um, right. uh, at Ludgate I because I was completely left alone I sort of created a, a front of store that was hidden that was for the connoisseur so we were having a really good time <laughs> of it if the connoisseur came in looking for a really more a more interesting book I would say come over here sir and show them this special selection of bays that I'd set up around the stairwell uh, so we could, we had a quite a good time of it like r- selling books when no one else was good fun <laughs> Let's have a bit more music. Um, so this is a bit of Robin Hitchcock and uh, a song called Virginia Wall. I haven't heard that track before. I'm a big fan of Robin Hitchcock. Um, and he did a he did a film, didn't he, in a bookshop uh, bookshop window? Was it a bookshop window? Or was it just oh, yeah. a shop window? Oh, good, good, Storefront good, yeah. Hitchcock. Storefront Hitchcock by the sadly now past Jonathan Demme. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Oh, I haven't seen that for years, but that's really that's a really good really good film and, and a great album. Yeah, um, I love Robin Hitchcock. He's um, again off off a lot of people's radars, but he continues to make really good music. That album in particular, I think. Uh, just called Robin Hitchcock. It's full of really good songs. Uh, and I chose that one because, just because literary connection, you know, Virginia Woolf and all. And, and where would we all be without Virginia Woolf, you know? There's, so Virginia Woolf gets a brief mention in your book, Don, I think, when you talk about, which I really love, where you talk about um, uh, about posh people realising that they didn't need to expand the amount of words they used. They just needed to work how to I'm not saying this properly. They needed to. They spent their time learning how to put together a paragraph. Um, and you mentioned that they're all reading uh, P.G. Woodhouse, Virginia Woolf, and someone else. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I sort of complained about Woolf at some other point as well about acceptable prejudices, which is you know it's, it was it still seems fine to, you know for Freud and uh, you know to have said anything he liked about women. And, for um, Wolf to have said anything she wanted about the working class, you know, and just like and not get censored somehow. So I think there's a slight yeah. snarl in her direction. But you know, yeah. she is magnificent. I mean, just like <laughs> you'd be, you know, churlish to deny it. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, I think I was complaining about or, or, or bemoaning the fact that um, I'd gotten the whole thing about articulacy. I can't even say the word articulacy wrong at quite a, a young age, and I thought it was about vocabulary, but it's not. It's about syntax. Yeah. It's about yeah. being able yeah. to speak whole sentences, and to do that, you need to read well. You know, and it was years before I, I, I read well. Yeah, I thought that was one of the, that was it, it, one of your fantastic footnotes. I think in the book, um, of which there are a number. Uh, are you a footnote I, fan? I, I get told off all the time. Uh, you know, I, I did one sort of big stupid treaties about poetry there was there was there was 50 percent footnote sort of a couple of years ago and, and got told off for that so i i cut lots from this one unbelievably there used to be a lot more i would just have books that were just footnotes and nothing else if i could get away with it <laughs> <laughs> and what is so and what's it what uh, why why is something a footnote why do you why would you make something a footnote because it's an aside because it's separate from the main text it's a commentary on the main text what qualifies something in your mind as being a footnote rather than being in the main body of the text? Oh, it's irrelevant. I think that qualifies it. It's, um, you, <laughs> you, could, you could cut it with no great loss, you know, but you right. just got to hang on to it because you can't murder your darling. Right. And you think, I've got to tell folks, right. this is so cool. Um, right. You know, and, and you should always resist it, and I just can't. You know, I just always end up whacking it in somewhere. But it's better than, you know, at least in theory, 
in shoehorning it into the text. Um, yeah, I tell yeah. myself, but it'd be, <laughs> it'd be better to put a red line through. But anyway, I can't do it. So. Uh, but but Martin, you'll say your your speciality is fiction. Then, um, yeah. So how did you how did that leap happen? Then you've gone to um, you've gone from Ludgate Circus and you've yeah. moved to um, the sort of Premier League, I guess, of bookselling, which would be the <laughs> that main floor at, at Piccadilly. Yeah. Um, uh, but that main floor at Piccadilly is a bit of everything, isn't it? It's not it's not just fiction. It is, yeah. I mean, I th- I don't know whether I was I, I was fiction in terms of I th- I tell you what it was. Um, I, I I was sat on a stool in the medical department on a Saturday at Foils, and I picked up someone had left a copy of How Proust Can Change Your Life by Alan de Botton uh, on the on the counter. It shouldn't even have been there, and I started reading it and thought, "Oh, I don't like Alan de Botton, but boy, do I like Proust." Um, and so that 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 was ninety eight, and then in ninety nine, I read the entirety of Proust, and that completely changed my life in a way that Alan de Botton had suggested. I just loved the way that he kind of he's not an intellectual. I mean, he is an intellectual in that he is curious and he is trying to understand the world, but he doesn't do so through pretentious kind of, uh, I don't know, he doesn't philosophize in the traditional sense. He's trying to get in touch with his emotions and his uh, his senses, and he's trying to understand the world via sensation. And the book was such a revelation to me that I think thereafter all I've been trying to do is read something as good as Proust. So I think it was really a process of Proust introducing me to what fiction was capable of doing. Uh, And so from that day forward, I've probably just been chasing that impossible, uh, impossible task. Right. What, um, what, um, uh, uh, going back to the, the uh, ground floor at Wharton's Piccadilly, how much of the shop's takings come from that ground floor? Oh God, hard to, hard to answer in any um, in any way that I, I, I won't get picked up on by my directors. <coughs> but uh, a lot would be my guess, in as much as probably something like around thirty percent of people. 70% of people don't even go to the upper floors. So on an average right. day, especially on a Saturday where you're taking twice as much as you are Monday to Thursday, most people will come in through that door and they'll browse the ground floor. They won't even know that there are upper floors or won't even bother to go to the upper floors. So I would say at least 50% of people will not even go upstairs, which we've sort of designed it that way so that if you were coming in for you know a bestseller or a classic bestseller, for anything in the top kind of thousand bestsellers in the company, you're probably going to find them somewhere on the ground floor. Uh, so you probably won't need to go upstairs unless you've got either a particular book that you're looking for or you're looking for a, spe- a specialist recommendation. Um, so I couldn't and give is you that, a number. Is that, is that the same for foils as well? Less so, um, simply because of space. The, if you just think about the floor space at Piccadilly compared to the floor space at foils, the floor space at Piccadilly is probably, I mean, not designed to because it's, it's at the behest of the space it, it was given, but designed around that space to be a catch-all for, for tourists, I suppose, primarily, because it's it's um, a block away from Fortnum and Masons. It's, it's one of the biggest and busiest uh, thoroughfares for the 
the, the tourist who's come to London for the day or even for the week with quite a bit of money in their pocket oftentimes. So it's much more of a, a tourist trap in the way of if, if you're a bookshop, whereas the whereas foils, of course it has that, but that stretch of road is not quite the same in terms of tourism. So yes, it's designed for that because all front of stores are designed to catch sort of people who are coming in and don't have much time who want to find that one book that's been mentioned in the newspaper that day but what you've also got to be able to do is draw them through the shop so what you need to do what you don't have to do quite so much at Piccadilly because you've got so much space there you don't need to whereas at foils what you can do is you can draw them through the shop and sort of send them on their way and make the displays up in the higher areas draw you through which is really what you want to do. Obviously, you want to have people, tourists to come in um, thinking they just want to buy that one book they've heard about and then they go all around the shop and get inspired by how huge it is and how exciting it is to be in a legendary bookshop. And, and how do you do that? By make, just by making the shop as attractive as possible? Yeah, yes, I think it's simply that. You want, you want to make sure that... You know, you want to make sure that the lighting is right, which is way off my radar, but the, the lighting has to be right. Well, the great thing about the new foils is that it's got that central atrium, so it's kind of really beautifully lit, so it really does draw you up the stairs. Whereas at the old foils, uh, you know, it was it was hell going up the stairs because you had that yeah. like, clunky lift and an old kind of like dusty lift uh, stairwell. So you, you probably wouldn't go up the stairs half the time unless you knew what was up there. But I think the way that the new foils works, the things that do work about the new foils building, I say new, it's been there for ages, isn't it? But the newer foils building is that it, the, the light draws you up the stairs. It's kind of got that feeling of wanting to go up to all these various galleries. So yes, you, you make sure that the offers are really interesting on every floor. Um, and you make sure that it's well lit and you make sure that it's clean and that you're you that you know where books are so when customers come in asking for things that that we can send them up there as well what were the what bookshops were there in dundee don when you were growing up i i'm trying to think if there was a bookshop um i think it might have been the kind of scottish equivalent of uh, of uh Smiths, which was John right. Mingus or John Menzies, you know, and, and which wasn't really a bookshop. And then all of a sudden, um, there were two, uh, and I can't, I'm not sure, there was one Watersons and, a, and another branch of something else. And I remember hearing folk sort of, you know, over, over here folk in, at the bus stop say at the time, what would, what would needing two bookshops for? And like that. <laughs> so it was, um, but it was an amazing bunch <laughs> of Watersons. It was brilliant. And it was, uh, you know, and it was, and it was peak <clears throat> Watersons, uh, you know, in the, in the early nineties where if I went in and I couldn't find a particular book by um, Calvino or Borges or whatever, I'd be outraged that it wasn't in stock because they had everything that you'd want, you know, and they allowed the booksellers to kind of indulge their own private passions, whether that was graphic novels or American imports or whatever, you know, and it was, it was just fantastic. Uh, And then it was interesting listening to Martin there about how that changed, you know, with the panic over, um, ebooks you know sort of um, totally misplaced panic as it turned out yeah um you know where all of a sudden it turned into you know sort of airports stack them high and and terrible for publishers you know that all yeah. the uh, the three for two was a nightmare because you'd always print lots of one that, that was never one of the three you know <laughs> uh, yeah it was it was a dire time and what and don what what was what books bookshops did you go to when you moved to london so you moved to london in what was it, mid-80s? 
late 80s? Uh, yeah, 84. Uh, um, just down um, Charing Cross, uh, just all the second hand uh, and remainder places in right. Charing Cross, which were, you know, some of which are still there. And it, it's just fabulous. And if I really couldn't find it there, I mean, and you were just operating on serendipity for the most part in terms of, you know, just buying stuff because it was like, you know, because it was 50 pence, you know, and it would it might yeah. be something really cool, like sort of, you know, Valerie's Analects or something bonkers, you know. Um, but you just buy it in spec uh, or the remainder of what of the Penguin Kafka's or whatever. So you just sort of, if there's something you really wanted, I'd, I'd brave foils. And as I say, give up halfway through, you know, crying um, <laughs> and, and, and feeling somehow too inferior to to use this shop. But, um, yeah. so, so Martin, are you, so you're the general manager now at foils, I think. Yeah. Do, are you, are you involved in any of the actual book buying yourself now or is that, are you one removed from that? No, the, um, the the great thing about foils compared to Piccadilly, and I loved Piccadilly, don't get me wrong, it was a beautiful building, I had a really good team there. Uh, the great thing about foils is that we have more autonomy. Uh, we still <coughs> abide by a kind of a head office buying, and so when we <coughs> have books that they want to shout about, we will do that, and we will clearly get, get behind them because they're judgment They've got years of judgment and years of experience, and they'll usually be right when there are books that are going to do well. But what's the point, and this is um, a conversation that I've had with all the booksellers there and the managers, what's the point in having a bookshop about 10 minutes walk away from Piccadilly and replicating their offer? So the, the, yeah. the reason I went to Foils in the first place, apart from the fact that I'd had experience there and they wanted a manager to go in there who already knew the place, one of the reasons I was asked to go there was because I was always much more independent-spirited, always had an excitement around trying to find and discover new interesting titles that other bookshops maybe underbaked or didn't even know about. So my own personal remit and the remit that I discussed with my my area manager was to maintain the independent spirit of foils and try and find the unique titles that Waterstones won't necessarily be able to find because it's 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 tied down to trying to do the same offer for 250 shops. So which so it's not a criticism of Waterstones by any means that's biting the hand that feeds. It's more that we are in an exceptional circumstance where we have, you know, a handful of branches and one major branch which we can focus on and really try to give it an identity, but also at the same time support local publishers and support small publishers and support independent publishers. So my job, along with um, a couple of other colleagues who Nina will know, Scarlett and Gavin and various other people, is to discover the interesting titles, the new smaller published titles and try and make them into hits. And do something interesting with that. So, um, what uh, what are you recommending for this year, then, Martin? What should we be reading right now? Oh, this year, excellent. So, I mean, there's, there's so I'm, I've only read a, a couple of bits and bobs. So, a lot of this is based on what I'm looking forward to and what I'm kind of hoping will be really good. Um, at the moment, I'm halfway through um, the Shutter of Snow, which is the new one in the Faber Editions series. So what Faber are doing, if you're not aware, they're, they're reissuing a lot of neglected classics from, well, from the 20th century. Uh, and Shutter of Snow is the latest one in that series. And it's a reissue of a book from 1930. It's about a woman who, uh, shortly after she gives birth, is put into a psychiatric unit. Um, and it's kind of her, the world seen through her eyes. So it's about her experiences in this psychiatric hospital. Uh, and it's sometimes really 
really clear and sometimes just spirals off into obviously her thoughts and delusions of I think I think she has this idea that she might be God as well so I'm, I'm about halfway through that one and I'm really enjoying that and it, that's I think that's out at the end of just end of January beginning of February so that's something um, uh, I think people will be interested in uh, what else um, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading I've read Cubby the new Benjamin Myers so um, that's um, Ben Myers, a, a really good writer, but his new one is something he's been working on for about four years. It's a novel based around the true life of St. Cuthbert, who um, was kind of arguably the founder of the Church of England and, and, and beyond. And so it's this, it's this story that takes place over sort of four separate time periods, but begins with the the reburial of St Cuthbert because he was buried at Lindisfarne uh, and then dug up and then they spent I think 90 years carrying his grave trying to find an appropriate place for him to be buried I think he was finally buried in Durham um, and they built a cathedral around it um, and these aren't necessarily areas of, of interest for me although I did go to uh, Lindisfarne earlier last year and it's an amazing place because you walk out through the walk out to the island across the mudflats so it's kind of got this really interesting feel that you're going back in time traveling to the island the way that they will have done centuries before but the story of St. Cuthbert's really interesting and the novel is just brilliant. So that's a, that's going to be amazing. Uh, would you like me to go on? Yeah, go on. Give us a couple more. There's um there's a book called Love Lader, which comes out, uh, I think, on the 26th of January. And it's newly discovered. It's published by Peninsula Press, who are another really small publisher. And it's um, written by a guy called Mark Hyatt, who took his own life, I think, in the late 60s. Um, and this manuscript was only recently rediscovered. Uh, and he was gay. And the, the novel is about him... Uh, kind of sleeping with various people and going around the cafes of Soho. Um, and he led a really interesting life. He was a poet, but this is the first time the novel's ever been published. And we're going to have an exhibition at Foils for it. Uh, we're going to have basically it's, uh, an exhibition of his life and of the various manuscripts. And we're going to have lots of lots of events around it where we'll have talks and discussions. And then there's going to be a tour of Soho. So we're gonna yeah, so that's gonna be huge for us. It's gonna be a big one from the end of January for about six weeks. What's that one called, Martin? Love Lader. Uh, L E D A. And then the last one, I suppose, that I was I'm looking forward to, the new AK Blakemore. So she wrote uh, Manningtree Witches, which was um, a book which did really well. Uh, and I think it was surprising for many people. It's a, a subject it was again a, a sort of a, a novel written or based on a true story of uh the transcripts of some people who were taken for witches in the in manningtree in essex and um, the new one and i'm and i'm got i need to look this up because i always forget what it's about it's uh it's called the bottomless man and it's set in 1843 france and it's the real story of a peasant called tarare who de develops an enormous appetite that can never be satisfied um and he basically <laughs> eats anything and um but she's a really good writer, and it won't be facile. It won't be um, won't be superficial. It will be uh, about appetite, and it will you know that it will be an intelligent novel about um, about humanity and so on and so forth. But she's a, a brilliant writer, and that's going to be something. That's not out till I think the last part, of, like I think late late summer. But really looking forward to that one. Who's publishing that, Martin? I think it's Granta. Yeah. Okay. Fab. Thanks, Martin. That's fantastic.
Right, let's have your last bit of music, which is The Divine Comedy and The Book Lovers. So Vantes, Daniel Defoe, Samuel Richardson, Henry Fee. 